on this episode of AV Week, leveraging hybrid systems that were put in post-COVID. NVIDIA announces a significant security flaw in one of their chipsets, and DNB purchases a UK distributor. All that and more next on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 507, recorded Friday, May 7th, 2021. Competing factions. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Sure, Sound Extraordinary, and by Chief, the global leader in commercial AV mounting solutions, and by FSR. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host with us to discuss the news and information we have gathered this week. First and foremost, one of the gentlemen that I go to when I need questions answered. His name is Brock McGinnis. Welcome, sir. Hello, Tim. Great to be here. Also from way across the pond uh, is my buddy, Mr. Jason Ward. Welcome, sir. Great to be back. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us on a, well, what is for you, Friday evening. Um, but at some point, there will be a pint in your future, and I appreciate that. So uh, I will. thanks so much. Uh, and first time guest, but I have known Tammy for a long time now, Tammy Fuquay uh, from Control Concepts and our buddies over at uh, Steve Greenblatt. So welcome, ma'am. Hi, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, actually, I met Tammy about a year ago. She was a part of our Learn From Home uh, segment. Uh, where uh, Brandy Alvarado and Corey Schaefer and, and the, the ladies at the Uvixa Women's Council took over uh, one of our sessions one night, and I met Tammy through through those folks. So I'm very nice to meet you, and uh, so yeah. good to have you on. You also got me a job that way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, our friends over at AV Network uh, and SCN, German Audio uh, Technology and Solutions Company, DNB Solutions has purchased um, a uh, solutions the uh, uh, has purchased. Um, the SFL group out of the UK. Now, what that means is SFL, if you're not familiar with them, they are the distributor for DNB inside the UK. This is in line with a couple of other interesting moves from the manufacturing side over the last three or four years. Um, probably about three years ago now, uh, maybe two, uh, Rico, uh, which uh, some of you may or may not realize Rico is getting more and more into the, the AV industry. Uh, they purchased an integrator uh, in Germany called DataVision. Uh, they launched that, and then they've actually got a number of remote monitoring uh, contracts in and around um, the Europe. So we've got manufacturers moving more and more closer and closer uh, to the uh, to the end user and to technology managers, and um, you know, sort of competing somewhat uh, with with integration firms or, in this case, distributors. Brock, let's start with you on this. What does it do uh, to an infrastructure? What does it do to a market when manufacturers start getting closer and closer to the, the, the finished product and to the, the, the final customer? Well, as integrators, um, we've always hated the idea that manufacturers would sell direct to our customers because how the heck do you compete with your manufacturer? Uh, and uh, and it just... it really surprises me because the UK is a huge market um, for uh, for live sound, probably not over the course of the past year, uh, but there will be a bunch of pent-up demand, uh, as well as for um, 
uh, for touring sound, and D&B is, is very good at both of those. And now it would appear there's only one place in the entire country to go and buy it. Because if I'm an integrator in the UK, um, why would I sell D&B potentially in competition with my manufacturer? Um, I, 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 I think it's crazy, and I don't know what's behind it. All right, Jason, same kind of question here. You are in the UK. Uh, you know, you look at this from a, a standpoint of sort of, you know, eventually competing with, you know, manufacturers or, you know, the, their, their distributor partners. You know, what does this do when you start looking at, you know, whether it's designs or it's your, your relationship with those manufacturers? I, th I think just, just to begin with, Tim, um, the, the DMB play doesn't affect what we do, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. But relate that, I, think, I don't think it's a new problem. Um, if you're honest with yourself and look at your competitor list, so if I was honest with myself and looked at my competitor list, I'd name Cisco as a competitor, even though I'm a Cisco partner, right? Because their guys go out in the field, talk to the clients directly, um, and will sell against you in opportunities that you're in um, with their gold partners. So it, it doesn't feel like a new thing to me. But when you muddy the water, your trust breaks down, right? We're coming back to some of, some of Brock's comments. There's going to be a big trust issue off the back of this, isn't there? Well, there is, and it also, you know, that there is that potential for, you know, the, the you, you mentioned Cisco. There are some manufacturers here in the States that, that have programs where they don't sell directly necessarily to large enterprise, but they do certainly call on them, right? And, and for the manufacturers, what the manufacturers would say is they are simply driving demand. They're creating demand. And the same thing has, has happened and existed in higher education um, as well as in, in, as in government, right, where you have business development representatives that will go out and they'll meet with Fortune 100, they'll meet with Notre Dame, they'll meet with USC, you know, and, and to, to drive demand, not necessarily selling directly to them. So that's, that's the distinction here. But certainly, you know, creating those relationships and hopefully, again, again for, for, you know, for you guys' point of view, you know, driving that, that pull. Does that, does that cross a line to you then? Or is that, is that more, uh, is it more the actual selling and getting a PO from, from a customer? <laughs> no, I was just going to say, um, in my experience with manufacturers and working the channel, I've always been an end user rep, but, um, there, you know, you're building that trust when you're taking that one layer away of the integrator or the reseller. Um, now you're kind of losing the trust of the channel. I mean, there's now, um, you know, one less opportunity for quoting or one less opportunity to, um, look into other sales, um, routes, but, um, I've just noticed that, uh, that it, it, it's, it's important to develop that relationship. And now you're kind of undercutting that relationship by going direct, but that I, it's certainly a model that you could use, but I, I've, I've always been used to kind of the channel mo model. Well, there's another issue that, um, that we haven't brought up is, is that, uh, is this the beginning of a very slippery slope? So let's say that a, a distributor, uh, adds 20% to the cost of something. And let's say that a reseller adds another 20% to the cost of something. Um, does DNB now able to come to market uh, and they're selling against, you know, uh, Nexo, Meyer, L Acoustic, um, are they now able to come to the market at 40% less than competing brands because this is factory direct to the customer? 
And that scares the living daylights out of me um, because that takes the entire food chain um, and shortens it, right? It's, it's factory and it's customer. Uh, traditionally, manufacturers have wanted a channel or a food chain because they have access to so many more customers and so many more relationships and feet on the street and ears in the ground and all those kinds of things. But maybe this just comes down to money and they're saying, why are we paying these people when we do all the work anyway? Um, it might not be the first German company to think that way. Uh, but it's uh, it's challenging for the market. I was just thinking, Tim, just ask the guys at Neat what they think of the channel. Yeah, if you're if you're not familiar with Neat, yeah, I'm I'm not going to get into that, but but go ahead and, and look them up and kind of what they're doing. I I would I don't know, guys. I I look at residential, and to me, residential, and I know I know enough to be dangerous about that, and everything I've, I've learned was from Matt and and the folks on the CDA side. That to me feels like more of a ready-made, direct-to-consumer market, and they still haven't done it right. I mean, yeah, you can put Amazon in there, and you can put, you know, um, Ring and, and Google and stuff in there, but you've still got companies that a hundred percent depend on the channel. A hundred percent depend on the smarts uh, of the of the dealers. There might be some folks like DMB that are that are trying it, or like Rico that are trying it. But I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sold on on the vast majority of the folks that will be at Infocom in, in October getting rid of the channel. I don't know. I could be wrong. All right. Uh, next story comes to us from our friends over at AV Magazine. Harvard Business School has spent quote unquote millions on hybrid learning uh, from the, uh, the article, quote unquote, the hybrid learning, uh, hybrid classrooms and the return to campus, which we did in a very forward looking way, required tens of millions of dollars in investments in technology and making the campus safe for the community. The Dean of Harvard Business Schools um, says, uh, Jason, start with you on this. They're not alone, right? You've got customers. We've got, you all got customers of, of, you know, both in higher education as well as in Fortune 500 companies, corporations, you know, that have spent tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, putting in hybrid systems, both hybrid work and hybrid education in the last 12 to 13 months. What's the best way for them to turn around and utilize that investment going forward as we all kind of return back to work, return back to classes, uh, and how are they going to be able to, to to utilize that investment? Hybrid. I'm, <laughs> I'm sick of that term, hybrid. Um, it's come out of uh, some, some marketing genius somewhere. And for me, it feels like it's going to the same boggy swamp that the telepresence team term went to. Um, Hybrid, a hybrid classroom is no different than a remote learning classroom, right? But somebody's given it a new shiny name to make a make a book, right? Um, so I'm, I'm just, you know, marketing people and their hybrid term is just right up to there with it at the minute. Um, it's remote learning, right? And and remote learning platforms are, you know, I I don't sell into the education market much, but surely that's the way that that's what they need to be doing um record remote record and store um joe way says it a lot more eloquently than me but th there is no hybrid in my opinion i'm sorry <laughs> there is no hybrid 
And don't tell Joe Way that he says any, says anything more eloquently than you. Just just my two cents. Um, Tammy, same kind of question is, is when you're dealing with you know folks. Uh, obviously, control concepts works a lot with with higher education, um, whether it's the higher ed market or it is you know corporate. Folks are going to have to be able to to to, to leverage that investment because it, it's not. I mean, J- Jason's right. Hybrid is distance learning from 20 years ago, right? Uh, it, it's you know. I'm not even going to say what it was, but we had two ginormous JVC CRTs in several classrooms when I was, you know, a tech manager in an ISDN line uh, to remote parts of our of our uh, of our camp of our school's um, uh, geographic region. But it's the kind of same thing. But this is now, you know, this was put on by necessity um, because teachers still needed to educate. There was, you know, a sizable investment. How do they best, you know, not recoup those 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 costs, but repurpose the systems and the infrastructure that they put in place? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think we're going back strictly to in-person learning anytime soon. So a lot of this equipment can still be used um, for what we're talking about, the hybrid model. But um, when it does start to go back um, more in-person, a lot of that equipment could be repurposed into different spaces on campus or um, within a company, um, maybe in huddle spaces where maybe students still are not able to be in a confined space. Um, maybe they'll still be able to use that, some of that equipment there. Um, but I, th- I thought what was interesting about um, this particular story was that um, you know, I, I felt like there was a lot of focus on how much they spent, but really um, what I focused on was how happy the customer was at the end of the process. I mean, they were just so um, thrilled with what the outcome was. And um, I think that that still could be, you know, if they're, if it's that kind of school, which was Harvard, they're going to be looking into other ways that they could repurpose some of that equipment. They're not going to just let it go to waste. So, um, but yeah, I think that that um, it, we're we're going to be continuing to evolve you when we co- when we come back into these spaces. All right, Brock, you'll have the last word on this one. Uh, you know, what what do we? How do you kind of walk your your client through this and and you know assess not only where they are now and what those systems are being used for currently, but also what they could possibly use for in the next six months to a year. Well, what I know for sure, Tim, is that you give me tens of millions of dollars, I will make you very happy. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, Jason, I disagree. So, uh, so hybrid, to me, is not a marketing term. It might not be the perfect word, but this is this combination of people who are present in the flesh, uh, in a classroom or in a meeting room, and people who are distant uh, and working remotely or from another location. And, and as you mentioned in recording, the third type of participant is the future participant, somebody who might want to access the content of that meeting or that class at some point in future. Um, it, it, this equipment is not only not going away, it does not have to be repurposed. It is actually going to accelerate. Um, I believe that, that every... Uh, university and every workplace is going to work in some combination of in-person and remote, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, Jason, um, forever. 
uh, and certainly for the foreseeable future. And for an educational institution like Harvard, um, this is a, a no-brainer. So uh, Queen's University uh, here in Canada has a distance learning MBA program. It is a remote MBA program. Um, and they have had sophisticated recording equipment for a long time, as well as sophisticated workflow, because the content of the lectures uh, is the intellectual property of the professors uh, or the instructors that are delivering it. Um, Harvard can triple the size of its business school uh, simply because, because there's no longer a limitation on the number of seats that are available in each class. Um, they can shift time zones uh, because people in Hong Kong no longer have to move from Hong Kong uh, to the Harvard neighborhood to attend the Harvard School of Business. They, they could attend exactly those same classes um, remotely and they may be time shifted uh, and uh, maybe some of the instructors uh, or, the, uh, uh, or the teaching assistants uh, would time shift as well to adjust for it. So there is, uh, it, it's, there is no loss for sure of the investment that they've made uh, and people will be making more and more and more of this investment. Uh, the world has changed forever. Uh, we're not doing everything in person anymore. I'm going to ask it because I've heard that exact same argument, Brock, and I've heard it from a couple of folks going back and forth. And, and it it might be something where I, I might, you know, offer it up to, to our buddy, Mr. Chris Netto, for, for aiding the AM, the conversation he does on Sunday mornings on Twitter. Does that diminish the elusiveness or the exclusivity of a quote-unquote Harvard degree or quote-unquote Yale or Princeton or these prestigious schools that not only do you have to be the best of the best, you, it goes back to Jason's market speak, right? The best of the best to get in, but you have to make the sacrifice to go there physically, right? And dedicate whether it's a MBA or it's a PhD from Harvard. Does that, does that diminish that, that kind of pedigree? Not if you've got the knowledge. I don't think so. Um, I'm in a master's program right now, and I feel like I'm learning just as much distance learning as I am in person. It's still hard. I still have to do all the work. I'm just not there physically. And if you want marketing crap, Jason, uh, look at the branding of the universities. So they teach you the same uh, mathematical formulas at Harvard as they do uh, at the community college down the street. One of them makes, uh, uh, charges $150,000 a year, and the other one pays you $15,000 a year to attend. Um, the, uh, the quality of education uh, depends on the quality of the instructor and the quality of the student, but the difference is not extraordinary. And, and I think a degree from, uh, a distance degree from Harvard would probably be equally well respected only because the person judging that will know that it cost a lot more than from uh, the University of uh, Albuquerque's extension program, right? It's, um, uh, it, it's marketing to And it doesn't say on the degree um, that it is a distance learning. Oh, probably not, no. It's still an MBA, right? It's mm -hmm. it it's still a um, uh, if uh, if if that continues to be important. Oh, I I think it will, and I I 
talking to my daughter the other day, and she was, we were discussing about what she wants to be when she grows up, and she's, she's just now turned 15, and so those conversations are getting a little more serious now. And um, she was discussing about being a teacher, and, and she wants to go into education. And I'm like, okay, that's great. You are going to be going to college until you're 23, 24 with your, with your master's, because by the time she gets out of school, I, I honestly believe it's becoming increasingly more, you know, the, the bachelor's degree is becoming as common as the high school diploma was when, when my parents graduated high school, right? And so now the bachelor, you know, the, now the, the next step is making sure that you differentiate yourself with, with that master's degree of some sort. Um, all right. Last story here uh, comes to it. Actually, this is a very, this may be the second or third time we've done this from threatpost.com. NVIDIA has unveiled a slight issue uh, with one of their graphics accelerators. Um, there's five uh, display driver security bugs. I'm going to have Mitchell put a link to it because I'm not going to read off the actual the actual bugs, nor am I going to read off the uh, the uh, drivers that they impact. However, the reason I'm bringing this up, and Tammy, we're going to start with you on this, the NVIDIA drivers and the NVIDIA GPUs um, are used in a number of AV devices. So uh, this goes back to security and, and AV security. Uh, Tammy's not only worked, obviously, with control concepts, but also with a number of manufacturers. When we start talking about security, when we start talking about you know releasing and, and, and communicating with the clients some of these security issues with products that aren't necessarily yours, right? So if you're... I, I'm not even going to you know, pick on anybody here, but XYZ manufacturer, but you're using a chipset from you know company B, uh, and they're the issue. How do you communicate that best to the clients, while also making them understand that it's not it's not you, it's this thing we used over here, right? But they still need to be aware of it. Yeah, that's a tough situation. I know I was working with a manufacturer that had some problems and your customers don't want to hear the excuses. They just want to know how you're going to fix it. Um, so I think that that's the key is really being constant communication with the customer to let them know what's happening and not pushing blame around. Um, and then also giving them a time frame of when it's going to be um, resolved um, is probably the biggest thing if you have it. Um, sometimes you don't have it either. Um, maybe it's still being worked out, all those bugs. Um, but it's important to just be in constant communication with um, the customer for sure. And nowadays, everything is um, cybersecurity is a huge issue. I mean, um, you know, at Control Concepts, so we do a lot with residential, and I hear a lot about how all these new things that are being attached to your network at home um, could be easily accessed. Uh, you know, that's that's a big deal too. So, um, yeah, I just I feel like even if it's not your specific problem, you still your your customer bought your product, so they don't know that it's the other person's problem. They just want to know how you're going to fix it. So. Yeah. Brock, a number of years ago, um, Barco ClickShare was the back-end engine for a number of wireless uh, display products uh, throughout the industry, right? So they were the engine. Similar situation here um, where there became a, a security flaw, a security uh, vulnerability. And so not only did Barco have to say, hey, by the way, there's this thing, all of these other manufacturers had to do the same thing, right? Now, I say yeah, a number of years ago, that has since been fixed a number of manufacturers actually were in the process of already not using Barco, but the same situation here. You, to, to Tammy's point, how do you make sure that the client is is taken care of, um, but also that you communicate the 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 kind of the, the fixed solution to this issue? 
I, I think uh, Tammy really hit the nail on the head. This is uh, this is about communication, and um, you know if uh, if any of our regular manufacturers uh, are incorporating NVIDIA chips that have a security problem, I wanted to know about it yesterday uh, because I have clients who have purchased those products and I need to inform them. And they have no way of knowing that the product they bought from me and that I bought from who knows um, actually has that chip in it. Um, and, and in fact, that was the first reaction I had when I read the article. It's like, oh my gosh, uh, it says some AV manufacturers, please tell me which ones. So, um, yeah, yeah, there has to be uh, an awful lot of, uh, of uh, communication um, that, that needs to happen down the road. Uh, problems happen. They're inevitable in technology. Um, it's, and, and it's not anymore about who's going to have problems because we're all going to have problems. Everybody's going to have a problem. Let's just talk about it and uh, get it out in the open. And that allows us and our customers and our customers' customers to protect themselves. Absolutely. Jason, uh, what's the best way to communicate this to, to your clients once you find out? Like Brock said, you know, let me know yesterday, but how do you go about, you know, disseminating that information uh, to your customer base? Everything, everything um, Brock and Tommy said is, is absolutely spot on. I think that the, the, the first thing for me is when you read the article, it's vulnerability, 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 vulnerability. It feels like I need a grading system on how vulnerable am I here? Um, because you know, every one of these is vulnerability followed by quite a lot of tech speak. So it's like, well, what's, what's the actual problem? How often does a tech guy come up to you and say, oh, there's a problem here? And I'm like, I don't know. Can you break that down into Brummy or something for me where, where, where I can understand what the real vulnerability is? So communicate it, but communicate it properly, right? Communicate it to the level of there's, there's a vulnerability here, but, you know, don't wet yourself. You know, we, we can solve this really quickly because, you know, when, when the Crestron vulnerability hit a couple of years ago, the market lost its, lost its head. Um, and it, and it, what, it was something that seemed to go away rel relatively quickly. So f I like people to talk to me at a level that, that I can understand what's going on. When I read this article, I don't understand the vulnerability. That's the point of the communication here. Is like, so how vulnerable am I? Do I even have one of these? How vulnerable am I? Um, the, the second point, I suppose, Tim, you know, as, as the security guys like Frank and Mark and all the other guys say, in all honesty, if you did a little straw poll of all the AV integrators, especially the smaller ones, who even knows about this to act on it? Like Brock said, you know, I, I want to know about this yesterday. But who even knows? Does the right person in every organization know about this to act on it? It's a problem in AV. So my, my second part is that, that that's an industry problem. My first problem part is me, Jason, how do I deal with this? Because I can't understand what I'm reading. Um, yeah, I know we've got guys that are employed by us that can understand what they're reading, but you know that they may sort of downplay the seriousness of this and sort of go, "Oh, it's okay." Yeah, you got you got you got to break this down that, that, that a senior person can act on it, right? I think it comes down to also making sure that your manufacturers are communicating this in an, in in a way that you can understand, right? Um, and, and that you can communicate to your folks because you're right. Most most. Um, integrators will have somebody on their staff, you know, whether that's the IT department or, the, you know, whoever that can understand the, the severity of this, but can they make the connection between that and, you know, something you may have sold last year? So, who knows? 
All right, folks, that will do it for us. Thank you all so much. Mr. Brock McGinnis, thank you, sir. Uh, how do people connect with you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brock McGinnis. Um, I'm there quite often, sometimes getting myself in trouble, as I did uh, this uh, past week. Um, maybe a few too many opinions. Uh, and uh, business-wise, you can find me on LinkedIn or uh, Brock at NationwideAV.com. All right, very good. Mr. Ward, thank you, sir. Uh, how do people connect with you? Ditto everything Brock said there, getting into trouble, too many opinions, at JP Ward on Twitter and Jason Ward involved on LinkedIn. They're the best places to find me. Uh, and I'll try and be I'll try and be nicer for the next month or two. Nah. <laughs> why, why would you? And you also check out Jason's uh, Jason's podcast, AV Jam, as well. Uh, AV Jam UK. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. Although I, I will point out that, that I think I've only been on once. So. We, I was only thinking that, that before. Yeah, today. they didn't like to back <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I just want. It's, all I, you know. it's a great pat on the back there. Yeah. Uh, Tammy Fukui, thank you so much. Uh, how do people connect with you? Uh, you can connect with me on Twitter, Tammy Fukui3, and on LinkedIn, or you can email me at tammyf at controlconcepts.net. And uh, if you're going to be in the Vegas area next week, I'll be at Calvo. So stop by and say hello. Um, I'll be doing a, uh, a panel discussion there. Yeah, that happens on the 13th of May. Uh, if you're listening to us the first couple of days of the week, uh, you can check out Tammy. You can check out uh, our buddy Mark Coxon. You can check out uh, Joe Way, a number of folks uh, that are going to uh, what, in essence, is basically the first uh, AV trade show in the, in the last 18 months or so. So uh, 18 months. Yeah, 12, 13 yeah, months at least. I have a question, though. Tammy, was, were, was Tammy Fuquay 1 and 2 already taken on Twitter? I guess so. I was so original. I just put in Tammy Fuquay and they gave me a three at the end. So I just left it. So apparently so. so <laughs> they can't be as awesome as me, though. No, no, for sure. Um, and I'm and jealous. so modest as well. I'm jealous of you going to Vegas uh, and uh, participating in a live panel discussion. Uh, I hope uh, attendance is fantastic. Um, I think the organizers of that show have been very... Uh, uh, adept, but also courageous in uh, in in doing this. People really want to get together, and I think it's going to do really well. And I, I wish Mike and team all the best. Yeah, and I, I I'm hopeful and, and prayerful that that Brock will be somewhere in my vicinity sometime in the next six months uh, at least. Uh, although in talking to him and you know our buddy Matt Scott, we'll we'll see what the what we can do for the Canadian government. And the, so we'll we'll absolutely see. So. All right, uh, for us, for me, don't follow me on the Twitters um, because I'm still crying over the blues. Uh, but go by the website if you would, please. Aviation.tv, that's aviation.tv. You'll find this program and a host of others, including our buddy Matt Scott's uh, program called Resi Week. Uh, he looks uh, at the residential side of the AV industry. Uh, we mentioned um, uh, the uh, some M&As. Matt will be actually talking with some folks uh, from Access Networks and uh, Snap AV because our buddy uh, Hagai Feiner and his incredible team uh, have agreed to a purchase for Snap AV. So, uh, and Snap has made some interesting forays uh, into the networking side of of the industry. From my count, I want to say this is the third networking company um, that they have purchased in the last three to four years. So that's that's a big deal. And so Matt will be talking to them as well as some other folks uh, on his show coming up this next week. So uh, also uh, check out our new one of our new programs called AV Spotlight. We take a look at uh, the technology managers 
of the industry. So check all that out and more. Uh, also check out our, our sponsors help us that help us bring you AV Week uh, and Rising Week and all the others. So all that and more at avnation.tv. That's avnation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. That's all the time we have for AV Week.